Well, glad you're here on a holiday weekend, and uh, glad that we can open the pages of God's Word together. We're starting a new series today on the book of Colossians. And uh, I don't know about you, but I hadn't spent, uh, to my shame, as much time in the book of Colossians as I, as I wish I would have leading up to, uh, to this. But throughout the summer, I've been reading through the book a lot. And uh, on vacation, I read through it several times. It's only four chapters long. It's a relatively short letter that Paul writes. It's in the New Testament. If you want to turn there now, just so you're ready, that's, uh, that's on page um, 679 in the Bible in front of you. Uh, if you want to use that, that's great. Um, that Bible is there as a gift to you, as a gift to those you come in contact with. If you know someone that needs a Bible, please take that and give it to them. If you just like that one more than the one you've got. Uh, we just want to see God's Word in as many hands as possible. So take that with you and, and use it. But, uh, so we're going to be camping out around 679. That's the first page. I, I don't, I, if I remember correctly, if you're using that Bible, it doesn't actually have the page number on it. It goes from 678 to the book of Colossians. And so if you're looking for actual 679, you're not going to find it. But uh, believe me, it's there. So Colossians is this four-chapter-long letter. Now, just so you're aware, when, when Paul or any author in Scripture wrote what they wrote, they didn't write it with chapter and verse in mind. They, this, was, this was a process that, that people would put together in God's Word and made it easier for us to be able to digest it and understand it. So that's how the chapters and verses came along. But when it was written, when the church would receive this handwritten letter from Paul, it wouldn't be written in chapters and verses. Now, Paul says in chapter 3 of his letter to us, that's not how it was written. It was a, a constant flow letter. And, uh, and we see themes in it that we were able to, like I said, put it into more manageable bits for us. But that's chapter and verse stuff wasn't put there by Paul. Um, we're going to be camped out in this four-chapter-long letter till the end of November. And, and maybe, maybe you're wondering, why? why? Why would we spend so much time in a, a, a book of the Bible that only has four chapters in it? Well, I think you'll see why, because one thing that Paul does in this is he really digs deep into some of the things that he wants us to understand, that he wanted the the, the Colossian church to understand. And for that to make sense to us, we need to dig into it at the level at which Paul expected the church to read into it. I don't think Paul sent a letter to a church and said, it's probably going to take them four to six weeks to read this, digest it, and then they'll move on to the next thing they need to know. No, Paul wrote this to them because this was, this was hardcore, in-your-heart theology that he needed them to be reminded of for them to be able to function as a church. I don't, think, I don't see anywhere in here where Paul wrote, make sure you're looking at this material for at least four to six weeks. No, he just gave it to them. And he said, this is critical for you to understand. And that's how all of his letters were written. In a, they were written to a specific location, a specific geography with specific things that were happening that they needed addressed, and Paul was the right man to address them. And so each one of these letters that he writes has reoccurring themes in them because Paul is about one thing, and that's advancing the message of Jesus. So some of this stuff is repetitious in all of his letters, and some of it is very specific to the letters that he's writing, depending on who he's writing it to. But before I can really answer why we would camp out in this four-chapter-long, you-can-read-it-in-one-sitting letter in the Bible, I think you need to have a better picture of who we are and who we hold at our core as a church. Something that we would say we want to be a part of our DNA. Now, we're young, 
Some of this stuff is being developed in process, but some of it is, is sound. It's who we are. It's who, is, who, who we were before this campus ever existed. There are two things that get ushered into eternity. When Jesus comes back to redeem the world, two things will go with him. People and God's word. Those two things will exist in eternity. The rest of this stuff we leave behind. It's not that that stuff's not worth investing something into, but if we're going to, as a church, invest ourselves into anything, it should be eternal things. It should be something that's going to stand the test of time. And God's Word is going to exist in eternity, and so are people. So as a church, something that we want to be a DNA marker is we're invested in those two things. Sure, there will be other things we do that manifest themselves, but we want to be about God's Word and people. So if we say that, the wisdom of God resides in people through His Spirit, and it resides in His Word. That's where the wisdom of God resides. We're able to make clear and concise decisions as followers of Christ because God's Spirit resides in us and helps us. And we're able to know better what to do because when we're seeking answers to tough questions, we have something to turn to in God's Word. So the wisdom of God resides in us as people, and it resides in His Word. So any topic that needs addressed in our culture, and that list seems to grow by the day, right? Any topic that needs addressed in our culture, we will, we're going to seek to find a response and an answer in this book before we dig into our own experience. That leaves another gap then. Do we just stop and say, okay, we're going to look at these things that are happening in our culture. We're going to address them from the pulpit. That is extremely appropriate. That is extremely appropriate. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But for this season, basically from today to the end of November, we felt it necessary to just dig into the pages of God's Word together. And the book of Colossians is something that, uh, that accomplishes that in our hearts. It addresses so much of what's happening in culture today. So we, as, as, a, as a church, we as a, as, a, as a campus... We as a network of churches and we as a greater Karis movement of churches hold the word of God in a very high regard, unapologetically. So we want to unapologetically dig into it. And we want to use the pulpit properly to discover that truth together. The pulpit's a unique ministry in the church because in our context here at this campus, all three aspects of our vision get accomplished in the pulpit. It's one of the very few things that we do as a church. We can say all three aspects of what we want to accomplish as a church, discover, disciple, deliver, happen. And they happen simultaneously. So the pulpit has this has this weighty responsibility that goes with it, that comes along with God's Word and being someone who instructs you in it. But God's Word has this opportunity for us. On a Sunday morning, depending on where you, where you are in your relationship with God, you have an opportunity to discover the truths of the gospel in a way that you never knew them before you walked in this morning. The pulpit has an awesome opportunity and a unique placement to be able to disciple us 
in what that gospel is and how we can walk out the doors and put this into day-to-day practice. Boots on the ground. The pulpit also engages us as, it, as the pulpit is able to be used to deliver truth out to us so that we are impacted with it as a church, and then we take that and we deliver it out to our neighbors and friends and coworkers and families and the people we come in contact with. So I say that to say it gives you, I want you to have a clear picture of why this part of our ministry exists. This isn't something that we do just because somewhere along the line, the church decided that this was a good way to run church, right? We didn't just find a church history book and print out an order of service from 1890 and say, yeah, we'll go with that, right? I hope you don't believe that. Now, I will say that churches all across America tend to find a rhythm and a routine that works for them, and we stick to it for a very long time, right? Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, but for this one thing, this one aspect of who we are as a church, I just wanted you to know where we're approaching it from and why. I think we operate in the church today on assumptions a lot. We assume that you understand and know things and, and, and know why we do things without ever explaining those things. I tend to do that in my parenting. I tend to just assume that my kids know why I'm doing something or, or why we're going someplace or why we expect certain things of them or why we don't do certain things. I think I, I operate on the basis of assumptions a lot that people just know certain things. And I think it's good every once in a while just put on the brakes and say, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but here's why we do this. And I wanted to take that moment this morning before we start this series to help you grapple with and understand why this pulpit ministry in this church exists. And that lines up really well with who we say we are as a network of churches. This, this is a very important section or collection of documents for us. This is God's Word. We put a lot of weight on it because it deserves it. We don't worship this book. We worship the God who wrote it. So let's look at the book of Colossians. We're going to start this off. Like I said, it's on page 679. We're going to answer a few questions before we really dig into this, though. One is, who wrote it? Well, we answered that already, and maybe you already knew that, but the Apostle Paul wrote this. Now, for those of you that know his story, maybe that's surprising. If you look back at the early part of the church coming into existence in the book of Acts, it should be shocking to us that Paul's the one that wrote this because Paul was once referred to as Saul and he was a terror. He understood the Jewish law better than anybody and he was so distraught with this whole Jesus movement that he sought to squash it. And I will say that out of the people we know of that attempted to squash the movement of the gospel, Saul was pretty effective at bringing fear to the heart of people who said they followed the teachings of Jesus. His name brought fear along with it. That was who he was. That was his identity. That's the reason, in my belief, that's the reason why He was referred to as Paul after his conversion because the name Saul brought up so much negative feelings and fear and timid response. Oh, we got this letter from Saul? We better not read it. It's probably going to say some pretty horrendous, scary things, right? But a letter from Paul who was able to reinvent himself 
as, as an apostle, someone who was equipped personally by Jesus and then sent out to establish and lead the gospel. So he did. Paul traveled all over the Roman Empire and he established churches and, and he wrote letters that we don't have copies of, but we know he wrote. And we, thank God, have some of the letters that he did write. So who wrote it? The Apostle Paul wrote it. But why did he write it? What was the purpose? Well, because Paul had caught wind that this church in Colossia was, was struggling. Not failing, but struggling. They had hit a rut. There were some people that had come in and, uh, and started to teach them things that weren't necessarily what uh, lined up with what he had equipped them to believe from the start of the church and what they knew to be true. So the purpose of the letter is to instruct the church on the supremacy of Christ. That, that Jesus, Jesus is preeminent. He's, he's the reigning entity. Don't lose sight of that, is what one of the main themes of this is. And if you can understand that, Paul's saying in this book, if you can understand who Christ is, who Jesus is, he's the supremacy, this preeminence, he is, he is the king, he is the Lord, he's higher than Caesar. If you can understand that, then the information is going is, is to keep them from listening to and giving credence to the bad and the wrong theology they're getting. It's the helmet of salvation theory that he talks about later in one of his other letters, that if you put this helmet of salvation on, you understand who Jesus is and what he redeemed you from, it will block out all the noise that wants to come into your ears that's contrary to that. You have to understand who Jesus is and why he is the king. So why did he write it? Or where, where was, let's answer this first. Where was it written? Where was it? It was written from jail. It was written from a Roman prison. You can read about Paul's prison experience in Acts chapter 27 and 28. He's in a Roman prison. He wrote the letter most likely while he was around 62 AD. And that's around the same time from prison that he wrote a letter to Philemon. That's also the same time that he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians as we know it. So Paul was a busy dude sitting in a jail cell, right? These are pretty remarkable letters that we have record of. He didn't waste that time. Who was it written to? It was written to uh, the church in Colossia, which is modern-day Turkey. So a little bit of background. By the time Paul had come on the scene, Colossia was a relatively small and insignificant city. But before that, it was a pretty major city. It was a pretty important city. But when the Romans came in and started to build their road system and their highway system, the roads sort of cut around certain cities and no longer were they important thoroughfares. People didn't have to stop in Colossae anymore on the trails because the road was smoother and they didn't have to stop at that point. So it was no longer a boom town. It's turning more into what we would refer to as a ghost town. But for some reason, this was on Paul's radar. And he loved these people. We don't have any information how the church or when the church began. The only information we have on the church and, and, and its beginnings and, and who they are as a church are the things that Paul alludes to in this letter and a little blip that we see in Philemon later. But 
It's not much. So we do know that there was this robustness to this church and that Paul had a deep love for them. It's similar to the church in Galatia, though, because in Galatia, the the Judaizers had come in, these people who were so devout Jewish, and they they weren't adhering to the teachings of Jesus. And they were coming in and saying, you say you're a Christian, you say you're a follower of Jesus, so do we. So do we. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you also have to follow the rules. And so they started to creep that mindset that it's Jesus and theology. And what, Jesus, what Paul has to reorient the church in Galatia around is by saying, no, 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 it's not Jesus and anything. It's just straight up Jesus. There is no and. It's Jesus. Now, in the book of Galatians, Paul has a more aggressive tone to them. He gets right to the heart of it. He calls them fools. So there, was a, there was a feeling, as you read through the book of Galatians, this letter that he wrote, that, that they should have known better, that they were more established in their faith. Well, Paul's tone in Colossians is different. The problem is similar, but how he addresses it is different. And some of the things that they're starting to believe, he just needs to reorient their mind around this truth. There's this false teaching. It's making its way into the church. Paul caught wind of this. So the purpose of this book is to reorient the reader's mind back around the supremacy and the preeminence, the all-sufficient reign of Jesus. So why did he write it? Well, that answers some of it. But for us to get a real good picture, why don't we read it? Colossians 1, I'm going to read the first 14 verses if you want to follow along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a fellow minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now Paul knew how to pray. If I ever feel intimidated to pray out loud, it's when I read how Paul wrote his prayers out. I'd love to hear him pray out loud. I'd love to hear the robustness of his voice. I picture Paul as this 
a commanding presence. You ever know someone like that? You feel kind of nervous as soon as they walk in the room. Maybe that's a boss of yours or, or maybe that's just a friend or maybe that's the, the, the girl you're, you're dating's father or maybe that's uh, just someone in your life that you just feel their presence. For me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a person I used to work with and, uh, and I have a great relationship. He and I still talk, but when he walks in the room, I just feel like he's going to crush me, right? Because he could if he wanted to. So there's these people in our lives that just have this presence and this, this, maybe it's a respect. For the church in Colossia, it's a respect. It's a, it's a high veneration. It's this, it's this, oh, well, Paul wrote us a letter. I can picture the whole town sort of just stopping what they were doing and gathering to make sure that they could hear this letter and pass it around so that other people could hear what it said because Paul's words were held in high regard. The proof of that is they kept them. You ever gotten a letter from like a bill collector? You kept it? You hand it down to generations? Look, this was dad's, this was great-great-grandfather's letter from a collection agency. This was so important that he kept it, right? But I still have handwritten letters that my wife wrote to me when we were dating. To me, those were held in high regard. Those were important. My dad wrote me a letter to tell me he was proud of me. First time I ever read it or heard him say it whenever I was in college. I still have it. I hold it in high regard. So the authorship alone and the fact that we have manuscripts of this written letter proved to us that what Paul had to say to these people, they held in high regard. They kept this letter. They would rewrite it. They would copy it and hand it out to people. Listen, you've got to read this to the point where whenever men got together to pray and seek God and say, what of all of these historic writings are inspired by you, God? What is the stuff that that needs to be out there for everybody to read? What is going to make up the holy scriptures? And God led them to put this in there. This letter that had been handed down through generations and generations, and now we still have access to it. That's a pretty important letter, don't you think? That's someone whose authorship has, has demanded an a amount of respect that not everybody has shown. Wouldn't you agree with that? So Paul writes this with an authority that was given to him by who? Well, let's start off how he says it. Paul is an apostle of who? Of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's saying who is there. Now, he says Timothy, our brother. That, that implies that Timothy, at least for sections of this, was sort of the secretary or the scribe while Paul wrote, while Paul spoke. Oh, these are the things they need to know. So the main theory is that Timothy, on his visits to see Paul in prison, would take the time to write these things for him. Later on in verse 7, we see the name Epaphras. If, you, if you've heard that before or have not heard that before, Epaphras is responsible for delivering three, at least, that we know of letters, hand-delivering them to the churches. Epaphras was a servant, this guy that doesn't get a lot of press, right? We don't hear his name very often. We don't name our kids Epaphras. If any of you are thinking of a baby name, maybe you should put that one on the back burner. Epaphras. You can call him Epi. 
So these, these people who were unsung heroes in the ministry of getting these letters out. But where did Paul's authority come from? He tells us right at the beginning, Christ Jesus, this is God's will. God's will is that I was an apostle. God's will is that I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. Timothy is lumped right in with that. This authority that's been given to me, Timothy is right along with me in that. Who's he writing it to? The saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's how he starts it off. He, he's, a, he's got a greeting, but in his greeting, he's letting them know who is sending him. How does he have this authority to say what he's saying, what has been given to him by Christ Jesus? That's going to play out and be extremely important in what, he, what the main theme of this whole letter is. And we'll get to that in a minute. Well, like any person that's going to tend to confront something here, he starts off on a wise level, okay? If you're going to sit down and confront somebody, if you want to do it peacefully, you usually start off by saying, hey, man, how you doing? It's good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. You know what? Can I get you a drink? Can I buy your lunch? I'm glad we have this time together. You know what? I saw this thing you did, and I was so impressed with that. And You know, I'm just really impressed with how you're doing. But here's something you did that really upset me, right? Like Paul, like a, he didn't come in and say, you idiots. Did he have the authority to do that? Sure. But did he take that route? No. Paul, like any wise person, whenever he's about to reorient people around truth, he does it through a relationship. He knew these people and they knew him. Paul hadn't just been given authority from God. He had been given a seat at the table at this church. Paul wasn't even there. Do you understand this? This is big because this is not something we typically do in the American church. Sunday mornings, I don't get up and say, Tim Keller wrote us a letter. Let me read it to you. And some of you would be like, Tim Keller wrote us a letter? Awesome. And some of you are like, who's Tim Keller? Right? But do you understand that back in this day, when the word got out that Paul had written a letter to the church in Colossia, that meant something to everyone in the city. Why? Because he had not only been given the authority of God to say some of the things he was saying and to be the person that established this church, he had been given a seat at the table because he showed up in these people's lives and he loved them and he spent time with them. So whenever he spoke things that maybe weren't so easy to hear, they heard him because they knew that he loved them. So he starts off verse 3 through 8. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now listen, if you're reading this letter, people will be like, well, Paul prays for us every day. Now I, I, I used the name Tim Keller because I have a, a high amount of respect for him as a pastor and as a leader. When, he, when, he, when I read something that he writes, it always reorients me towards truth. So if I got a personal letter from him that said, I pray for you every day, 
I would keep that letter. I would keep that letter, and that would mean something to me. So you understand this giant of the faith, this this man who is known throughout all of the Roman Empire as someone who loved Jesus and loved people and wanted them to know Jesus, is writing this city a letter and saying, every day when we pray for you, we thank God for you. Ever since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. He's he's giving them a good news report. Listen, you're not alone in this church in Colossia. The good news that has made its way into your heart and has changed the way you see day-to-day living, it has made its way throughout the world and it's doing its work. People are meeting Jesus. People are understanding the gospel. You are not alone. That's what he's telling them. It's increasing fruit as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. They probably held Epaphras at about the same level of veneration they held Paul. Seems to me that Epaphras was more boots on the ground. He was there more often. At least that's what this alludes to. This leads us to believe that they would have had more access to him personally than they had to Paul. And Paul is saying, listen, Epaphras, on on your behalf, has come back and told us of your love. For others and your love for Jesus and your love that comes from the Spirit of God that resides inside you. So Paul starts with this this greeting. Let's them know who he is and what his authority derives from. Now some letters that Paul writes, he takes more time in the greeting. He gives more time to introduce himself. Maybe give some credentials. His greeting's a little bit longer. The letters where his greeting's shorter alludes to the thought that that city would have understood who he was at a higher extent. So he does the greeting, and then he goes into thanksgiving. He praises them. He tells them, I'm so thankful for you. I want you to know that the gospel is on the move, that the people all throughout Asia and the Roman Empire are coming to understand who this Jesus is, and the same Jesus that has changed your life is changing lives all over the place. That's what he's telling them. But then, he goes into this powerful prayer, starting in verse 9. When I think of praying without ceasing, I think of a moment like this, starting in verse 9, when Paul starts off with a sentence, and he just instinctively dips into prayer. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge. It's like he just seamlessly dips into prayer. Do you see that? Did you catch it? Verse 9, Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, he's still making a statement to them, we have not ceased to pray for you. He's talking to them, asking that. He's not talking to them anymore. He's talking to God on their behalf now. Did you see the transition? 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. He's praying for them while he's writing. His audience just shifted, but he wants them to know what he's praying for them. Now, I think you can tell a lot about someone by what they pray for. If you ever hear someone pray out loud, I love to hear people pray out loud. It shows a lot about their heart. The people that are scared of it, I, I, I just wish we could just wipe that away. Some, somewhere along the line, we believe the lie that for you to pray out loud, it has to be this polished, rehearsed, written-down thing. And that's sad to me because, because that's not how we talk to one another, right? I mean, I don't say your name 15 times in two-minute conversation with you, do I? I don't say, Dustin, so glad to see you, Dustin. And Dustin, today, Dustin, I pray, I hope, Dustin, you have a great lunch today, Dustin. And Dustin, you are a great guy, Dustin, and I'm so, Dustin, glad, Dustin, that we're friends, Dustin. Is that how we talk to each other? I hope not. If you talk to me like that, you are a weirdo. (laughs) And I will probably stop you at some point in the conversation and instruct you in such. I will tell you, you're a weirdo. Stop using my name so much. It's weird, right? Yeah, I wonder sometimes if God wants to stop me and say, like, I know my name. I know my name. You don't have to keep reminding me. But I wonder sometimes where that thought came in. I think, I believe it's Satan convincing us that it has to sound a certain way or, or have certain words in it. We have to have deep theology in our prayers. Is it good to have deep theology in our prayers? Absolutely. It's also good to have childlike faith. I like to hear my kids pray. I like to hear Jack pray. Last night at dinner, he thanked God for his brothers at least seven times each. And thank you, God, for Isaiah and Toby. And thank you for Toby and Isaiah. And God, thank you for Isaiah and Toby. And thank you for Toby and Isaiah. And there's a part of you, and you're like, okay, we get it. But there's another part of me that's like, no, I'm going to let them keep going. Like, this is good stuff, Right? So I don't critique him in that moment. I don't want him to feel like that's the wrong way to pray. I think there's times where I can instruct him on things that he can be praying for and things that, that he, he, he should know about Jesus. That's parenting and discipleship. We should teach each other what is important to know and to value about the person of Jesus, and that information should show up in our prayer life. But when we want to know how to pray, Jesus gave us a perfect example. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and I don't think we need to rehash it right now. But Paul has this beautiful prayer, and what he prays says a lot about his character. It says a lot about what's primarily important to him in the life of the church, especially in the life of the Colossian church. So let's walk through this a little bit here. He starts off by saying that I, I, I ask God that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you would know the right thing to do. That you would be filled with His wisdom. That you would be filled with, with His will. That you would want to know what His will is. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He answers the why question before it's ever asked. Why would you pray that for me, Paul? Why? So that you can walk in a, in a manner that's worthy 
of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what He wants for these people. He wants them to bear fruit in every good work and to increase in their understanding of who Jesus is, of who God is. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. He's telling them essentially that whenever you run against hard times, I want you to endure, I want you to persist, I want you to know that this robust faith that's been implanted in you, that you have the gift of receiving and having and living in, that, that, that is what should strengthen you when things don't look the way you hoped they would. Have endurance and patience with joy. Give thanks to the Father. And listen to this. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Do you understand what that means? The implications of that? What Paul is instructing the church, what he's instructing us with now? That you've been qualified that the gospel makes you qualified, that the gospel puts you in a standing with God where He views you at the same level that He views His very own Son. That no mistake, no dumb decision, past, present, or future, will ever change your standing with God from the moment you receive it forward. And you are a worthy recipient of the inheritance of the saints. You are a worthy recipient of the inheritance, the full inheritance of your Father God, His share of the riches. What Jesus inherits from God is what you and I inherit from God. That's what the gospel gives us, a rich inheritance. And then, in verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When Paul could start off this letter anyway, he starts off this way. He lets you know where his authority resides, and it resides in the person of Jesus Christ. He lets you know what he appreciates and what he's thankful for in and through what God's doing in and through you. And then he lets us know how he's praying for this church. Now, granted, we are reading someone else's mail here. But there's truth that's rich in here that's intended for us. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't have it. Contextually speaking, we're reading someone else's mail. In direct context, Paul wrote this with the Colossian church in mind. But they kept it, and God allowed it to persist through the ages and make its way into our hands today. You realize what what the gospel gives you? God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You have been removed from eternal darkness and damnation and have been put in the light of His Son. You have been put there. You have been placed there. You've been given the riches of it. That's you. That could be your story. 
If you're here today and you have received this amazing information that Jesus Christ died to redeem you of your sins, and if you were the only person on the planet, he would have done it anyway. That information then leads to the fact that he rose himself from the dead, conquering sin for all time, for all humanity, rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the presence, the kingdom of his beloved son. Where, early he says, we will live in the riches of the full inheritance of God. Now listen, it's so important to Paul that to start off the letter, everything that he's going to talk about from this point forward, it only makes sense and it only has the impact that it's meant to have if you can understand that. Everything we're going to break down over the next few weeks is, is hinged upon the fact that you know who Jesus is. That you know what he did. Everything we do as a church hinges on that to make Christ known to the masses. But if you're here today and you're going to be here next week and the week after that or any following week where we dig into this for you to really understand what we're talking about, you have to understand that. And that's how Paul wrote the letter, so that's how we want to talk about it. You have been transferred out of the dominion of darkness, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The supremacy of Jesus, the preeminence of Christ, the kingship of Jesus, the greatness of God. Without a proper understanding of that, then the do's and don'ts that may or may not come along with the gospel won't make any sense and won't have any eternal impact. So the knowledge of who Jesus is should drive our worship. Our worship should be driven by the fact that we know who Jesus is. That, that's the starting point for true worship, is having this robust understanding of who Jesus is. It's not that you have to have a, a theology degree or understand the deepest and, and, and widest parts of theology. It's just understanding that who you were without Jesus and who you are with Jesus is a completely different person. That you've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light where His, his beloved Son lives. And you are a, a worthy, a worthy recipient of the rightful inheritance that belongs to Jesus. God calls you worthy of that. Not based on your record, not based on your merit. So no matter how good you are, you can't earn it. No matter how bad you are, you can't lose it. God's grace comes in, swallows us up, and it takes us into His presence. The song we're going to sing has some words in it that I think are so powerful. So incredibly powerful. But one of the, the, the concepts of this song is, if the rocks cry out and worship, so will I. If the mountains cry out and worship, so will I. If the heavens sing your praises, so will I. So once we know who Jesus is, we have no reason 
not to worship. So I'm going to ask the band to come up as we intro this song. Is somebody getting Meg? So this song is called So Will I. The cadence is a little different. It might not be one that you're familiar with. That's okay. See, worship isn't singing. Worship can be singing. But that's not primarily what it is. So I'm going to invite you to worship with us on this song. I'm going to invite you to just bow your head and close your eyes and do that now. I'm going to invite you to think through in your own mind to answer that question between you and God, who is Jesus? Your worship can lead you to sit, to stand, to kneel, whatever you need to do to best connect your heart with the heart of Jesus. But if nothing else, maybe you'll catch on to the melody. Maybe you'll catch on to what the song sounds like and the structure of it and you'll be able to sing along and if that's you worshiping then I highly, highly encourage you to sing but whatever it takes for you to worship this morning that's what I want, that's what I want to see happen because this song is all about once we understand who Jesus is it leads us to worship you see all other created beings and created things in this world already know him They know His voice. He created them. So when the rocks cry out in worship, why wouldn't I? So if nothing else, if you don't sing, if you don't kneel, I want you to at least pay attention to the words and allow this to be something that sticks in your head the rest of the week.